You're listening to the E-Commerce Excellence Podcast with Joris Brion. Hey, this is Joris of the E-Commerce Excellence Podcast. And today I'm really excited to talk to Sisun Lee. Sisun is the founder and CEO of Morning Recovery. And uh, Morning Recovery is a science-backed hangover drink um, and that helps detox and uh, counter the negative effects of alcohol. Um, in the first three months, uh, they made a million dollars and that's very impressive. Uh, so I'm sure this is going to be a very interesting uh, episode. Sison, uh, welcome to the e-commerce excellence podcast. Really happy to have you here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, so maybe just to start off, um, yeah, can you tell me a little bit more about your background, uh, where you come from in your career, so that uh, our listeners can understand a little bit more about you and how you got started um, with morning recovery and in e-commerce and how you got to this point? Sure. So. I mean, my background before Morning Recovery, uh, by the way, Morning Recovery is the, is the brand, um, um, and it's the first product that we've launched. The parent company uh, behind Morning Recovery is More Labs. So More Labs is a company that we founded um, a year and a half ago, and Morning Recovery is the hero brand that um, you know, we've, we've been sort of um, pushing forward with. Prior to More Labs, my background was actually, um, I would say, highly unrelated to what I'm doing today. Um, mm-hmm. I've been in tech. I've graduated an engineering degree. Uh, once I graduated, I worked full time at Facebook as a product manager, and then I was a at a similar role at Uber. And most recently, before More Labs, I was a product lead for a particular org at Tesla. Mm-hmm. And so my background is mostly around engineering, uh, consumer tech, and yeah, I would say it's very serendipitous. Um, and definitely not planned in terms of how I got, how I stumbled across the, this e-commerce um, business. And how, how did you come up with this, this idea? Yeah, I, I think it's a series of serendipitous events. Like mm-hmm. one thing was prior, so right now I live in LA and our company is based in LA. Before that, when I was working in tech, I was mainly in Silicon Valley up in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And one of the common things living there is um, everyone's always working on side projects, usually outside of their daytime. And so myself included, and it's, it's also, a lot of it is for fun. You know, you're not, you don't have this ambitious idea of um, creating the next business or a consumer app. You just get together with your friends because there's a lot of designers, engineers, and hackers. You can just build things easily. And so I've always been accustomed to just making things over the weekend. It's been fun. Um, and part of that idea was also because I was so used to just building things and seeing where it goes, making samples, we would call it MVP, you know, minimum viable product. Mm-hmm. When I had an opportunity to visit South Korea, which is where I was born and raised from until I was nine years old, uh, and realized that there was this massive market for hangover drinks. And they would literally call it a hangover drink. And similar to energy drinks in the US where you have Monster, Five Hour, Red Bull, um, there were so many of these leading brands there where all of the domestic CPG companies had their own versions of these hangover drinks. Um, and so when the idea an uh, opportunity came up where we could partner up with a few doctors that were studying some of the key components in these drinks, um, we just kind of put on our hacker mode and thought, well, this is really fun. Can we make samples? Is there anything we can do to test this? And so that's how the idea began. And, you know, it was a series of months where reaching out to those doctors, getting on a phone, meeting them in person, you know, took some time, convincing them to work together, took some time. We made a bunch of samples. We gave to friends and family. 
And then slowly over time, that momentum took us over to making more samples, giving it to strangers, building a website, getting feedback, building a Facebook group so we can direct uh, engage directly with our beta samplers. And so it was a series of these kind of events that in um, over time tipped us over to uh, making a decision to say, okay, we think there is a very strong demand. This is really fun making this. Uh, we really enjoy learning the science. And because we have these doctors at USC um, who can help us sort of prove the efficacy and make the formula, uh, we had something. And so the final decision was, let's see if people would actually pay for this, which was the mm -hmm. idea of launching an Indiegogo crowdfunding campaign. And I would say when that was successful, that was really the first milestone um, that got us over the phase of a project to really think about this as a full-time business. All right. So, um, yeah, that's, that's when you basically got proof of, of, of concept on Indiegogo. But uh, speaking about uh, Indiegogo, um, you uh, chose for Indiegogo and not for a Kickstarter. Um, can you share the story how you ended up with them? Well, the funny thing is um, supplement category is, is um, not allowed on Kickstarter. And so mm -hmm. for any entrepreneur uh, or any makers out there that wants to launch a dietary supplement through a crowdfunding campaign, Kickstarter is just simply out of the question. Mm -hmm. um, and so that makes the option really easy, right? Because then the next, I would say, the big platform that people are familiar with is, is Indiegogo. Mm -hmm. um, that being said, at the time, um, I wasn't actually aware of that fact. And so we were actually evaluating between Kickstarters and Indiegogo. Uh, we actually chose Indiegogo on its own, despite realizing that even if we chose Kickstarter, uh, we couldn't have actually done it. Uh, and that was because we, we, we work with the partners in each of the companies. And by the time we reached out to them, we weren't just at a point of uh, an, an idea phase. We've already accumulated over 20,000 email lists by then. And for these crowdfunding campaigns, the biggest proxy for success is how big your community is even before you launch. Because when you launch a product on these platforms, you need a very strong momentum to get go right away. And if you have an initial base of customers that you can target, if they can come in and help accelerate the pre-order phase, there's a, there's a virtuous magic that happens, right? Then all of a sudden you reach your target goal faster, the algorithm kicks in in this crowdfunding campaign because these are the ones that are being funded. It gets shown in the, their email list, their homepage, which means there's more discoverability, which means more people outside of your email list um, visit. Some of them will buy and it'll continue and continue. And so by the time I reached out to them, we had some leverage in the sense that, hey, we have 20,000 people that are very eager to pre-order. Um, mm -hmm. What can you do for us? And so we listened to both of them. Kickstarter didn't offer too much. Indiegogo um, offered more uh, perks in terms of promising us a spot on the homepage, promising a uh, spot on the email. And ultimately, we chose the, to work with the Indiegogo team uh, more for their belief that um, if they really work together with us, we could blow this out of the park. Mm -hmm. Which you did, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean... You know, it's one of those things where we never had a binary threshold of what a success looks like. We wanted mm -hmm. to raise 25K because that's what we needed to get our initial production off the ground in a factory. And so mm -hmm. I would say anything above 25K would, we would have been happy with and we would have pursued it. Um, but we did $252,000. So that was definitely unexpected. And, you know, yeah. we were relatively very happy with it. Yeah. And uh, so those, those 20,000 emails that you had up front, uh, 
played a vital role in, in, in getting there or, or essentially the, the first probably 24 hours typically are uh, essential on, uh, on Kickstarter or Indiegogo. Uh, but how did you get those 20,000 emails uh, before launching on yeah, Indiegogo? Yeah, I, mean, I, I, think, I think one of the things that you know, I've learned building products in the Bay Area is it's all about building the initial momentum. You don't need a perfect product. You need an MVP that solves the core problem that you're intending to solve, and you need a early niche community around supporting that. Um, and so for probably six months during our sample phase, it was just continuously iterating on making the right samples. I mean, we our initial version was pill, then we had powder, and we realized that people much more prefer a ready-to-drink beverage just because mm-hmm. of two things. One is, I think, the convenience. Um, Second thing is when you put it in liquid, um, you're dissolving a very small amount into a large solvent, which is water, which means it gets diluted, uh, which means then you have the ability to change the flavor. And so it doesn't have to taste like whatever the notion people have about these type of detox drink, you can actually make it taste pleasant. Uh, and so all in all, I, I mean, that's something that we've learned quickly. And so we kept iterating on our minimum viable product. Mm-hmm. Uh, we changed the flavor multiple times, but along this time, I mean, I think we've made about thousand samples along those times, um, gave them away, got feedback. Many were structured like surveys, many were just informal, but the idea was keep expanding on that sample list from friends and family to then strangers. So the way we got strangers was we opened up a website, posted on product hunt and the website was basically saying, here's what we're working on. There's a form, very simple. Give us your name, give us your address, and we'll ship it over to you. And we basically said, just like, please give us, fill out the survey after you try it. Obviously, not everyone's going to fill it out, but we had about 50 to 60% completion survey rate. And I think as you do this, you're building a community. And once we started making more samples and it become harder to manage everything over email, we opened up a Facebook group, a private group, which is open today called morning recovery, semicolon, beta testers. And then we basically told people over email that we gave samples to, hey, like, don't worry about the survey. Uh, if you do it, it's great, but can you join this Facebook group and just like give us some real feedback? Um, and the idea there was, one, it was easy to manage. We could directly communicate with them. But the second thing was we were, we were having more people who wanted to try our samples than we had the capacity to make the samples at the time, uh, which meant even if those could, people, we couldn't give them the samples, we wanted them to invite them to a place where they could read and listen and hear about the feedback from their peers. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the idea was very simple, which was how do we build this community in an authentic way? And we didn't have to make it, um, I think, it, it could be super raw. Like anybody can make a Facebook group. Uh, there was nothing refined about it. But the idea was, Let's get it out there that we're working on this. Let's get the feedback. Let's get their friends and friends excited about it. And then along the way, you know, the word of mouth spread. And we've obviously done a lot of our own um, sort of viral marketing towards getting the samples heard. You know, we made a website. Um, we went out. We gave samples away in front of like nightclubs uh, where we know people probably are drinking uh, maybe more than they should. Yeah. Uh, we posted and used forums like the product hunt. We put it on places like Reddit. Um, some of the small blocks picked it up, Uncrate um, picked us up, and that gave us a big um, traffic in the website. And so there was not a one thing. It just kind of grew over time, over time. But 
really how it got from probably around 6,000 people to about 20,000 people is during that time, the word of mouth spread where somebody from Business Insider um, reached out and wanted to write an article about us. Um, and I'm pretty sure, and it's very hard to track the attribution, but I'm pretty sure that press um, really gave us a significant boost in traffic. So um, over the weekend when that press went out, and that was a Business Insider article that had a title called ex-Tesla engineer create an FDA-compliant hangover drink, um, our email list went from about six, 7,000 to about 20,000. And then, wow. you know, it's, it started to grow more and more and more. And by the time we had about 25,000, that's when we launched Indiegogo. Cool. Yeah. So basically, y y people were very passionate already from the beginning because you were, you were solving a core problem that they probably faced too many times in their opinion, probably. Uh, but um, as strange as it might, might seem, uh, your product is, you found out that your product is not as much about preventing hangovers, is it? Um. Yeah, I mean that's a, that's a that's a good question, and it's something that we're actually continuously iterating on. The the I think the DNA that that our team has is we're actually not CPG veterans, right? And and I wouldn't even call us an e-commerce veteran. You know, we're mm -hmm. a bunch of our core team is from the tech world, and mm -hmm. the philosophy in tech, especially in consumer tech like Facebook and Uber, is iterate quickly, test what you don't know, um, and get to the right answer quickly. And when we launched this, we had an assumption and hypothesis as to who would want this, why would they want it? And I have to be honest, I think early days, I thought this was going to be a very conventional, quote unquote, hangover drink. My target is gonna be college college students, young professional, and people that just wanted to party hard, but also have the responsibility to take care of themselves the next day, whether go to class, uh, for student athletes, you know, go, go, go to your workout, or young professionals get to work. Mm -hmm. um, and so we definitely catered towards that need and we wanted it to be very functional. This is all about hangover. Um, but to our sort of pleasant surprise, um, when we, when we, when we went out like that and then we started observing our customer base and their feedback and what they were saying, we quickly realized that we were actually quite off. Our biggest demographic early on and still today are actually mostly parents age 40s to 50s. Um, they're professionals. Um, but their common theme is that they have kids. And the use case of why they use morning recovery is actually not as conventional as you might think. Um, mm -hmm. They don't drink alcohol as often as or as much as you would think that they might need a drink like this, but they definitely enjoy themselves. Um, but they want to enjoy themselves guilt-free uh, in a responsible way. And then the next day, um, they have a huge high urgency to wake up in time, take care of their children, and do the things that uh, they need to do, and and that the first, but but the commonality is all there, and and the, the and the actual reason why they need, might need to wake up could be take care of their kids. Um, some people want to wake up, do go work out, do yoga, get to work early, meditate. Um, but it was all about being more productive the next day, um, mm -hmm. and being able to do more of the things that they need to get done. And so you know, it wasn't like we had this magical intuition that hey, it's not about hangover drink, it's about productivity. Uh, we definitely started um, with the idea of the ladder, and over the course of iterating with our customers, we just realized that actually that wasn't the core problem that we were solving, um, which is why actually after a year and a half, um, this is we're, we're gearing towards March 2019. We're launching, uh, we're announcing the launch of uh, multiple new products beyond morning recovery. You know, we want to help people outsmart themselves, not just when they have rough mornings, but 
when they are fatigued, when they are stressed, when they can't get enough sleep or have poor course um, sleep quality, when they have a brain fog. To us, like this is a, an extension of natural extension of what morning recovery customers want, which is when you think about what slows you down, hangovers is one of them for our customers, but there are other daily stressors um, that slow you down. It could be um, the things that we just talked about, which is a brain fog, fatigue, mm-hmm. anxiety, and stress, um, poor sleep quality, low immunity. Uh, and those are all the things that, you know, we believe at this point from learning from our customers that uh, it is what they expect from us in terms of the products and value that we bring. And so uh, it was an iterating cycle over time. And it's still something that we're learning, you know, what is a true value proposition? Um, yeah. And I think it's not binary for different customers. It, it differs. Mm-hmm. Sure. No, I, I, I love that, that, that story because um, it shows how important it is to, to, to keep listening to your uh, customers and, and it actually determines uh, the course of your entire company with the, the launch of those new products because if it hadn't all been about hangovers all the time, uh, you probably wouldn't have shifted with the entire company towards other uh, products about productivity. Uh, so, yeah, that's very cool. Um, this product in particular, um, it's, it's typical, typically a product that, um, people might be skeptical about. Um, how do you try to overcome this? Yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a constant battle, and I think that's something that is common amongst all products in this category, supplements, drugs, uh, or anything that's highly functional. Mm-hmm. And so I don't have a magic um, solution because I think if, if I did, um, you know, we would be a billion-dollar company. <laughs> um, right, and so I think it's a constant battle, but I think there's just like, key themes that we try to tackle. Uh, I think one is like reason to believe. What is our true reason to believe? And that could be science, that could be the credibility, that could be sort of the social proof. And it's probably a combination of all, but we wanted to quickly give people an opportunity to understand that here are the reasons why you should believe. And it's probably other things such as, you know, we, we have a very strong money back guarantee in your first order. If you don't like it, you don't even have to tell us why, we'll just take your money back. Well, I mean, we'll take the product back, we'll give you your money back. Um, and the idea there is very simple. You know, we're dealing with efficacy where it's all about subjective reasoning. Um, mm-hmm. Even if we can prove to you that actually we improved you because we've lowered your acetaldehyde um, sort of uh, accumulation in your body, which is a toxin of, um, you know, that alcohol turns into that your liver has to process. And if you drink more than your liver can process, it accumulates and it causes the nasty feelings. Uh, that doesn't matter if you wake up and say, I don't feel good. You know, at the end of the day, you didn't have a good experience with us. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think it's a combination of making those kind of promises, staying behind your product to realize that that's going to be a very, very small percentage of your orders and customers. Um, and really just trying to craft all these reasons to believe in a very, very compact manner that people can take away with within seconds. Because, you know, this is something that we try to, emulate across all of our advertising. When we ask all of our employees, and we now have um, a little over 20 people in LA, the reason why they join, you know, everyone has different reasons, but the core theme, the one variable that's inclusive of everyone is because I tried it and it works. And it's really, it's based on real science Uh, because no one would, you know, realistically join this company if they thought that they were selling placebo bottles. Um, So everyone gets to try it. Everyone gets to read our papers. Everyone gets to talk to our doctors. Um, but, but that is a, a cycle of multiple days and weeks of learning about us, talking to me, talking to our doctors, talking to our advisors, um, trying it yourself. 
the problem in this world of the e-commerce CPG is the attention span of consumers is very limited, right? We're fighting for their attention. There's other brands out there. There's other things out there. So how do we provide all of these contexts and true reasons to believe that we've talked about probably into like a 30-second advertising in, in terms of providing it in a website in a manner where if you join our homepage for 10 seconds, there's something that you can take away with. Mm-hmm. Um, and we understand that you know, there's going to be multiple touch points before a prospective customer decides to give us a try. But the first time they hear about us, it has to be a very, very compelling reason to believe. Uh, because I think like our hypothesis is very simple. If you had strong, strong conviction that this would work, then within our demographic of consumers, you know, who are generally on a higher disposable income scale, we think the, you would buy it. Like $5 for a drink, that sometimes that you would probably need when you drank too much, which meant you mm-hmm. probably have spent a lot more than five bucks, is not very expensive. But it becomes very expensive if you don't think it's going to work. Because mm-hmm. then all of a sudden the mentality goes from, do I want to spend $5 a bottle to give, give myself 24 hours back the next day? When the obvious, obvious answer is yes. But if the framework is, do I want to spend $5 to try something that probably won't work? All of a sudden, that five dollar can seem like a waste of money, right? And so it's 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 about helping us helping our customers shift that mentality, um, and it's it's really difficult. And 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 I think the more difficult part is that everyone has a different rationale and different reasons to believe. Some of our customers want hardcore science, and we got to be able to provide it for them. Some of our customers don't actually care about science at all, um, and they just resonate with really viral, funny ad ads. And, and mm-hmm. you know, those are the ones where we have to rely on a lot of clickbait ads to get them into the funnel and let them try for themselves. Um, sure. Because a lot of times people just buy for shits and giggles, right? Like it's just, mm-hmm. that's what they want. And then we have customers that really want strong, strong social proof. Who's behind this? Who said this works? Do you have influencers? Are my friends using this? And some customers are forever skeptical until they try. So then we have to offer some kind of optimized funnel where they can try firsthand for free, perhaps. Maybe we just give them one bottle for a discount. And so, you know, it's a combination of everyone, everything. And what we're trying to do is segment the customers in the right way and provide them with the right reasons to believe that is probably optimized for that segment. Yes, uh, very interesting. And, and I think uh, you do a very good job uh, on, on the site, uh, really countering, uh, yeah, skepticism in general, uh, like, uh, uh, drinking water helps. Uh, no, it doesn't. I mean that kind of stuff. It it is. Um, it's very convincing. Uh, the site. So uh, doing good, a good job there. Um, what do you believe um, is key to grow in e-commerce um, in in today's environment? Um, I mean, this is this is like something that I'm also learning. So I don't think mm-hmm. I have a perfect answer. But I think at the very core when you reason through first principles, you need the LTV over tech economics to be sustainable, no matter what you sell. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so if we, for example, let's assume that somebody is selling a fairly low price, fairly commodity product online, um, where the one-off purchase price point isn't very high, it's not very premium, the only way this thing scales is if you have insanely cheap CAC, which is customer acquisition cost. Mm-hmm. or you have an insanely high repeat rate where your LTV goes up. So for, for those like that don't know what LTV or CAC is, I mean, like I, they, that's probably the first thing they should really master before starting yeah, e-commerce. Definitely. LTV is lifetime customer value, which mm-hmm. basically tells you how much on average pr- 
profit is the customer bringing you over their entire lifetime? And then CAC is how much money are you spending to acquire a customer at an aggregate level? And so the, I, the math is very simple. If you're paying more to acquire customers than the value that they're bringing you in terms of dollar, then you have an unsustainable business. Mm-hmm. Um, if the ratio is flipped around, you have a sustainable business. And I think just really getting to the truth of this economics and really answering yourself whether it is going to work or not uh, is going to be really, really interesting. You know, if you have a very, very high price premium product um, where the repeat rate is really low, but when, when they buy it, you know, you're getting $500 LTV off of one-off purchase. That's a way to really scale the business uh, because even if your CAC is higher than usual, you're making profit off of every order. Now, if you don't have a high repeat rate and the LTV uh, sort of caps out there, uh, you're, gonna, you're going to run into trouble as you scale because as you scale, as your CAC goes up, if the only thing you can do to really scale the business is to continuously lower the CAC, but you don't really have a good way to increase LTV, uh, you know, there's, there's going to be a plateau. And at, at some point, you need to really think about, can I upsell this? Can I diversify my product offering to increase LTV? Can I create a component and change the business model where there is actually a recurring revenue? So these are all things that I think fundamentally uh, determines whether an e-commerce will be successful or not, which is what does your economics look like and is it sustainable? Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Uh, it's it's basic math simply, but there's a lot of people that don't really know it uh, and, and, and don't really, well, they sometimes look at CAC, but they don't really look at lifetime value. But I think that's probably even more important than, than CAC. Uh, but um, yeah, maybe just because um, we're running out of time, but maybe one last question. Uh, what's the biggest mistake you made? Oh, you mean running the business? Yeah, running the business and the whole process of getting morning recovery launched on anything. Oh, uh, man, there's, there's so many. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can share so Um, Let's see. I think the first mistake that is that really hurt us um and, and it took us it took us some time to really get to a better state is um undervaluing brand you know i come from a pure engineering math background uh, like like we talked about and when you look at marketing as a whole there's you know you can start to dissect where the money goes to and i think the easiest way to really think about um in terms of CAC is when you spend money on things that are direct response, things where like mm-hmm. Facebook ads, Google ads, you pay X dollars, you know that within a week, you know how much revenue you make back and you could calculate your return on ad spend. Um, those are very direct response advertising. But then you have all these other side of marketing that's around brand awareness that you, it's impossible for you to measure the attribution of revenue online, but you know p- big brands are doing it all the time. These are mm-hmm. sample giveaways, field marketing, these are experiential marketing partnerships, um, videos, brand videos, things that you know that you see like TV ads um, that you as a small brand might be sort of scared to try out because first of all, they're very more, much more expensive um, in order to get sort of one spot out there. Um, you know, they're not sort of continuous, like spend $1 on Facebook and, and get something out. Each one is gonna score a couple of thousand dollars. Uh, and then the second thing is just like, you're not going to be able to measure the ROI on what that advertising did in terms of your revenue. But, but I think that the, the limitation is the few things that you require to grow an e-commerce business on top of having an economic sustainable is that you need to compound that with a community and a brand. 
mm-hmm. um, you know, those are the things that don't that that sort of put everything together that allow you to learn from from your customers that cause that virality that lifts up that word of mouth. Um, and ultimately, your strong defensibility starts to shift away from the fact that you have a good product uh, because the reality is a lot of people have good products and, and, and eventually becomes defensibility becomes about the brand. Uh, and that becomes super powerful. When you then have that brand, all of a sudden your reasons you believe all of a sudden aggregates towards just that brand affinity, right? At some point, if morning recovery becomes anonymous, synonymous to what a great recovery drink is, we don't need to train people, hey, here are all these facts. Here are 10 reasons why you have to believe. It's just simply, oh, it's morning recovery. I trust that brand. I'm going to buy it. And all of a sudden that becomes super powerful and that compounds in all these things like economics because then all of a sudden your cat goes down. Because mm-hmm. when people see the, the brand more, more or less, they're just going to buy it. And so I think like there's a right balance of how much you should spend on building the brand versus really getting your core economics and doing direct response marketing uh, and just selling the product online. Um, but I, I don't think I don't have a good answer as to like what the right balance is when you should be doing it. But I think because of our background of our, our team here, we've gravitated towards sort of the mathematical growth. Uh, much more than we should have. And it's only over the last couple of months that we really started to refocus and, sh- and put more of our emphasis on branding. What is the brand that we want to create? When people look at more labs, um, what do people think and feel? And what do we represent? What is our message to our customers? You know, these are all things that when you, when you mention stuff like it's really about productivity and not a hangover drink. Well, that's a message that people have to get it when they look at our brand. And so mm-hmm. those are things that we're not going to be able to control and adapt through things like um, direct response marketing, in my opinion. Um, and so I think, um, you know, that's one mistake that it's hard to say, like, there was one decision I made, like that caused this massive error, but it was mm-hmm. more of a mindset that I had. Um, and, 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 you know, it's just... Um, it probably cost us in terms of the, the growth. When we had a lot of momentum, we should have really, really focused on building this brand um, versus making it super functional and just focusing on the, making a quick funnel for people to come in and buy right away. Um, so I would say that that's, that's the one that uh, um, is, is a big mistake that I've made. Yeah, and I think it's, an, it's an, a very normal mistake to make. Uh, I, I see it all the time with the e-commerce companies, like brand is, is like when they're already selling for years and years and years, and then they start to think about, oh, maybe I should start building a brand. So I, I think you got it pretty <laughs> pretty quickly. Uh, but it's it's uh, typical. I mean, at first you just want to sell, 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 and, and, and a brand seems so vague and abstract and how you do it so you kind of postpone it for later and you underestimate uh, the power of brand um but um yeah uh, this has been a really great season and uh yeah we could probably go on a, a little longer but uh we're running out of time just want to make sure before we go that people know how they can find you uh, and learn more about you and your brand um yeah what's the best place for people uh, to connect with you uh just across social more labs so on Instagram, add more labs. On Twitter, add more labs. That's the best way to uh, reach us. Awesome. Thank you so, for, so much for being here, Susan. Uh, it's been uh, really great. Awesome. Thanks for having me. The e-commerce excellence podcast is sponsored by Dexter.agency. We help e-commerce business owners scientifically increase revenue without needing more traffic. Ready to discover a more reliable way to increase conversion and, more importantly, revenue? 
Register for our free training, The 5 Transformations That Double E-Commerce Profits, at dexter.agency webinar.